Welcome to Listening with Leaders. I'm Doug Knoll, lawyer turned peacemaker. I teach executive leaders how to listen to emotions rather than words so that they can become the leaders everyone wants to follow. And I teach those same leaders how to be authentically present, available, and connected to their families, despite being insanely busy. I have learned that we are 98% emotional and only 2% rational. Learning how to listen to emotions is, in my experience, the foundational skill of life. Stick around to the end of the show, and I'll reveal how you can be on our next guest in 15 to 20 minutes. So let's get started. Christine Spadafore, thank you for joining Listening with Leaders. You are the CEO or founder of Spadafore Playgroup, and you can be found at christinespadafore.com. Thanks for taking time out today to talk with me. My pleasure to join you today. Thanks for asking. Well, we have, you know, we were talking before we were recording, we have some commonalities, but but I think that we'd all like to know about your journey. You've got, you've done a lot from an ICU nurse to a lawyer to, I mean, consulting. I mean, tell us a little bit about you, you and your background. I've taken the longest distance between two points <laughs> and, and the journey is continuing, which is, you know, a real adventure. Uh, yes, I started out as an ICU nurse. Um at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, and then went back to school and got a a business degree and planned to put business and medicine together. That took me to Washington, DC, where I worked on health legislation at both EPA and the Department of Labor as a health scientist, and then went back to graduate school. I was thinking that I'd probably go on to medical school. I got a master's degree in physiology, thinking about medicine. And when I was um, in graduate school at Harvard School of Public Health, I had the great fortune to have a mentor uh, who was in the science and technology program at MIT. So part of my master's was at MIT. And when I asked him for a letter of recommendation to medical school, he said, no. (laughs) You're in my class. I know how you think medical school is not the place for you. I think you should go to law school. I said, you're biased because you're a lawyer. Um, he was also a PhD chemist and a classical oboist and a wow. jazz pieces. So here's a real Renaissance man who saw things in me that I didn't see in me at the 20, whatever age well, I was. Well, there you go. I'm a jazz violinist. So oh, there we go. Yeah. So just a quick story on this. So I said, look, I've spent all my money applying to medical school. I really don't have, I'm a, you know, I'm a graduate student. I don't have money. And so he took out his wallet and emptied all the cash and pushed it across the desk for me. Wow. He said, you apply to Harvard Medical School. If you don't get in, you're not out anything. If you do get in, it's the best money you ever spent in your life. This is Harvard Medical School or Harvard Law School? I'm sorry, Harvard Law School. Harvard Law School. Yeah. So um, so I applied to Harvard Law School and was privileged enough to get in. I'm the first lawyer in my family. Wow. so from, from law school, I went to work at a corporate firm, which was a terrific firm in Boston. Um, but in about three or four years, I found that it just, I wasn't a match for corporate law and created my own position through a series of networking to become the first general counsel at a pediatric hospital in Boston. They didn't have a pediatric hospital, or I'm sorry, they didn't have a, um, they didn't have a general counsel at this pediatric hospital. Um, we all of a sudden had a turnaround at the hospital. The president put me in charge of a big piece of that. And I figured out I liked fixing things. 
the the turnaround was successful. The little hospital is still operating very successfully today. And from that, it took me into consulting, great place to fix things. And so I was with, I was privileged to be a a partner at um, three premier firms, Boston Consulting Group, Alex Partners, and CSC Index. And in 2004, set up my own firm. And the reason I did that was because I had a number of clients, uh, Fortune 25 clients, Fortune 50 clients that were transitioning into other companies or transitioning into new roles. And they wanted me to stay with them. But their new economics were not a model for these big firm economic models, um, which requires at least a billion in revenue to to afford um, a number of these, a number of these premier firms. Um, so I saw white space where they could get BCG partner quality work um, at less of a cost. And so I set up my own firm and was very fortunate. All my clients came with me and I've been busy ever since. Wow. So what is it that gets you up in the morning? What do you like to do the most? What's your passion? Uh, there are a number of passions. One is I think about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She said, make the world a better place, leave tracks. That's very much how my parents lived. Mm -hmm. Um, They were quiet philanthropists and really instilled in my brother and me to whom much is given, much is expected. So hopefully trying to make the world a better place um, a number of ways. One is I do a lot of pro bono work for nonprofits, much more than I was able to do if I was in a firm. So I'd like the freedom of that. I do a lot of mentoring um, with, with young women who are surprisingly still encountering some of the obstacles I faced coming up through the ranks and they're still encountering the same. I also, um, I also really like to stay intellectually engaged. I do more writing now. I'm a contributor to articles for Forbes and Fortune, Inc., Bloomberg, and I find that very interesting. And I'm also um, a frequent and regular guest on a number of podcasts and a BBC commentator. So I'm trying to do good while at the same time um, sharing ideas on on thought leadership and particularly around um, leadership in general, but also around um, gender equity and board governance. I do a lot of work with boards um, and I'm on a publicly traded board. Um, and also I've been on private private boards as well. So the board work keeps me very engaged and I find that really fascinating to, to be part of figuring out solutions for very complex corporate issues. Right. And I'm the chairman of the board of trustees of our local law school. And um, it's been an interesting journey. Um, so what is it what is it that you think that's unique that you bring to the table that people won't find anywhere else? I talk a lot about and hopefully have demonstrated um, adaptive leadership and agility and flexibility in the workplace, particularly um, post-COVID. This was happening before COVID, but particularly after COVID. The business environment is so much more uncertain than it has been before. Right. And so having adaptive leadership, having an adaptive and agile company that can pivot quickly so that they are proactive rather than reactive when the unexpected happens, because now we know the unexpected will happen. Right. So, repos- so thinking about how to reposition a company 
for that eventuality while at the same time continuing ongoing operations. Businesses, the, the industries are evolving, the business environment is evolving and companies need to in, evolve with it as well. So that's one of the areas that I focus on um, against just sort of doing business as usual. So that's one piece. The second is when I work with my clients, it's really taking a holistic approach to the culture. I'll tell clients, I can change your balance sheet, but culture is going to be a longer term project. Um, moving the culture, if it's not there, to one that has a more human approach, a holistic approach. And when I talk about a holistic approach to an organization, I'm talking about thinking about employees' financial well-being, their physical well-being, mental health well-being, and social well-being. And employees are wanting that as well. We're seeing it more and more as employees are saying, I want more flexibility because I also want a home life. And there was an interesting article that came out just yesterday. I believe it was from CBS News. It said the number one reason that um, employees are leaving the workplace is because their well-being is not being attended to. Right. Um, I, I know Amazon's losing $8 billion a year on retention problems. Uh, I mean, it's unbelievable to me. You talked about adaptive leadership. Is, is that the same adaptive leadership that Joe Heifetz writes about or has written about? Yes, yes. Okay. So, so, it's employed when, so it's employed when there's a systemic issue. So we can use COVID as a great example for this. There's a systemic issue. It's not a technical issue. Like we right. need a new conveyor belt. Somebody knows how to do that. Exactly. That's a technical mm -hmm. issue. But it's a, it's a systemic issue. No one group owns it. And there's no obvious solution. That's right. So one of, one of the things um, I find most um, innovative about this, and every, almost every client I talk to say that this is an issue for them, is it structurally breaks down silos. You must have collaboration on the horizontal, not on the vertical, because again, it's systemic. It's no one department, it's no one function, and no one group knows how to fix it. It's affecting the organization across the board. And so it's bringing people together in a new way to collaborate. If I can give an example, I was working with a client. Uh, it was a turnaround situation. And I talked to the client about putting a group together, not the usual suspects. People from different departments that had never worked together before and people who were on the front line feeling the pain they knew what the problem was and they had great ideas how to fix it. No one had ever asked them. There was one woman who had been with the organization 20 years and she said, this is the first time anyone has asked me for my opinion. Uh, and this collaborative group came up with a phenomenal solution that turned the organization around. I find when I teach adaptive leadership that, that there's a lot of resistance to it because it's hard work. You've got to you've got to really you've got to have a whole new set of skills that and culture shift. It's a culture shift. That's right. And and adaptive leadership is not taught in any MBA program. I don't think most MBA professors have ever heard of adaptive leadership. And so when you introduce these new principles, um, what kind of resistance do you get from people who are who have been you know kind of brought up in the old school way of thinking, the technical leadership that Heifetz talks about? I find that the people on the ground again when you engage them. They're energized by it. They feel 
um, that they can contribute to innovation. So it's almost from the ground up. Again, this, this group that we had put together, this team that we had put together who'd never been asked before, spread the word upwards about how this was working. In this situation too, the board was engaged in doing this shift. Where I hit the resistance was with the senior management team and the CEO. Right, that's that's where I see it. Yes. And and, and because it, it takes, it's a completely different way of thinking about leadership. Yeah, it's not the, it's not the big man leadership right. anymore. <laughs> exactly it's, right. not, it's not the top down, you're gonna do it my way. That doesn't work. It hasn't worked for a long time. Right. It's still out there. But employees don't want it and employees don't respond to it. Right. The employees are smart. There is wisdom in the crowd. They just need to be asked more and invited. This is an inclusion piece. And if I can add one more, the other thing that we were able to do with this now diverse group, diverse because of departments and functions, we were also able to bring in a DEI component. So we had more women involved. We had more people of color involved. We had unrepresented groups involved in this team. And so it wasn't just about inviting them to the team, right, to get the diversity check mark. Mm -hmm. So you have the numbers. So we've got X number of women and X number of underrepresented people. It was the part about inclusion. They weren't just there. They were included. They were, they were there to engage in being part of the solution. What was your role in that process? I was a consultant. I was brought in by the board to uh, help turn the organization around. And um, so were you facilitating meetings with the, all these different groups? I was. How much, um, one of the things that I teach is to thinking about when you're bringing in all this diversity, is people bringing in different values, different beliefs, different histories, yes. and there can be conflict. Yes, and there was. And so how, how did you deal with that messiness? Yeah, so what we found is th this group basically broke into two parts. One was sort of the legacy people that had been there a long time. This is the way we've always done it crowd. And, and another group that said, we've really got to shift things if we want to be sustainable, if we want to stay in business. We've got all these new ideas. Our clients are looking for them but we are in our own way. Why didn't we do this 20 years ago? Mm -hmm. So we have these two groups and there was the conflict. So what, um, what I did, which makes people uncomfortable, um, was basically announced, this is going to make you uncomfortable. I think announcements matter, right? So it, can, right. So it, so it um, adjusts people's expectations. And we had conversations about points of view, why this will work, why this won't work. It was basically very much uh, in your line of work around conflict resolution, but it did not come quickly. We had people pair up one-on-one -on -one by their own choosing. These people had worked together. They liked each other. They respected each other, but they were very, very um, in very different camps on how to pr proceed going forward. And they, on their own, set up these off-meeting um, coffees, dinners, whatever, and started to come together. But at the same time, I was facilitating when we were in the group, 
that, and I know we're going to talk about this, that they not just listen to each other, but that they hear each other. There's a difference between listening and hearing. What were they really saying? And um, that took us probably about a month to break that through. And the learning here was you have to address the elephant in the room. Because if you don't do it up front, it's going to pop up somewhere else. It will sabotage your project. It will sabotage your organization. Whatever good work you're trying to do for the solution, it will fall apart because it will surface at some point. So you really need to tackle it up front. And that's really challenging because I teach people how to take difficult conversations and transform them. And that's what you have to do. You have to confront the elephant in the room. And people are very uncomfortable doing that. Yes, because they're fearful of the negative emotions that it might be triggered. They don't have the emotional capacity to deal with the stress of talking about something that's really hard. And so they, as Heifetz says, you know, they engage in all this work avoidant behavior uh, because the stress is too high. How do you manage that? Well, and people would take it personally too. Of course. But they're friends, but they take it personally. And so now people were mad at each other. And so... So shifting the conversation to debating the ideas and not not about debating each other. It's not personal, but it feels very personal when you're so invested in a particular idea. Of course, it feels personal, but decoupling the personal from what does the organization need and how do we come up? with a joint solution for that. Again, that took about a month for us to decouple all of that. Yeah, I mean, people become deeply invested. Yes. Who they are, their identities get wrapped around their ideas. And so when their ideas are challenged, they they feel like the brain can't distinguish between a physical threat and a social threat. And so the brain's gonna react exactly the same way, you know, and fire up the defense mechanisms. And now we're, (laughs) you're into, fights and arguments. Um, and so, I was just going to say, another piece of it is making clear that there's no right or wrong. Right. So we would take it back to the mission of the organization, the purpose of the organization, the vision of the organization. This is where we're headed, the strategy of the organization. How do we make these things happen? How do we stay true to our mission and our vision and our core values and the strategy that we're trying to achieve? Where where is that joint solution in here? So no one's right or wrong. We just want to hear what everybody has to say and then figure out how do those potential solutions match up with the best answer for the organization, not the best answer for you. That's right. So how did you're working with all these diverse people from different parts of the organization? How did the senior leadership take all of this? This is a radical idea for a lot of companies. Uh, it, and it threatens their power. So they're going to be, they're going to be, they can be a little sketchy on this. So at this point, because we also had a very detailed communication plan, right? Rumors are more interesting than the truth. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Making sure we were communicating frequently and regularly, and not just from me, but from the people in the teams as well, going back to their groups and saying, this is what we're doing. So it's not, again, about one person doing the communication. The CEO was not liking this. I'm not surprised. The senior management actually started to come along because we would include them. They were the usual suspects who would be out there to solve problems. We would invite them to some of our working sessions so they could see for themselves how engaged their people were. 
um, the board was completely engaged. The board loved this. In time, pretty short time, only the CEO was not happy because it, he felt like he was losing his power. Right. Because he was a top-down guy. Like nothing happens without me saying it's okay. And so um, he felt very threatened by this. How did that ultimately resolve? The CEO resigned. I'm not surprised. Yeah. I've seen that. I've seen that over and over again. Yeah. And and the board, uh, let me put it this, the CEO didn't, the CEO took on a new role, which was not a CEO role. Right. Um, it was more of an out, outward facing role. Um, and one of the board members came in as the interim. CEO. Yeah, it's, this is really, the process you're describing is powerful. Uh, and it's also very difficult for people who are not flexible thinkers to be able to adapt. I mean, that's why it's called adaptive leadership. Um, yeah, that reminds me of a typical bell curve. I'm sure you've seen this many right. times. So you've got 20% of the people on one end saying, we should have done this a long time ago. Sign me up. I'm all the way in. You've got 20 people, 20% of the people on the other side saying, no way, no how, not going to do it. And then you've got that 60 in the middle that are sort of fence sitters. Like, I just need more information. I think I can get behind this, but just tell me more. Engage me. Keep me informed. And those are the people that eventually will move over to the, we should have done this a long time ago camp. The 20% on the no way, no how, I'll give you a quick, a quick story. I was um, called in by a board to do a turnaround for another organization. And um, in one of my town halls, I said, we are raising the bar on discipline and accountability. We can't keep doing what we were doing. Otherwise we're not going to survive. And so there's a woman in the back who raises her hand. She goes, well, I kind of like the low bar. <laughs> <laughs> and what I told the board was over the course of a year, you should expect, or don't be surprised if you have a hundred percent turnover. Not because we're laying anyone off, but because we're shifting the culture of the organization to what it needs to be to be accountable and responsible and disciplined and focused. And so people who don't want to sign up for that will leave on their own. We don't need to do any layoffs. In about three months, that woman left. That's right. The bus is moving and people are going to get off the bus. Exactly. And that's okay. Yes. Yes. Thank you for your service. You helped us get this far. We are grateful for that. We are now on a new course. We hope you'll join us. But if it's a course that you don't want to take, then then we wish you well. So you work you work for you work for companies or you're, you're brought in on engagements where you have some somebody must be visionary, whether it's the board or the, or the senior management. They're visionaries enough to see that they've got to change. Yes. They don't have the skill sets themselves to do it. And so they bring in somebody like you who does have the skill sets to make this happen. And they they let you do your work. And I would imagine most of the time you're pretty successful at achieving the outcomes that people are seeking. Yes. I mean, fortunately, all the organizations I've worked for are still in existence. Right. <laughs> um, in, interestingly, I will also be brought in by private equity firms. Uh, yes, I've done that work, too. Uh, um, their portfolio company isn't selling. They took it to market, nobody wanted it. So I get the call, um, here's the feedback we got why the portfolio company didn't sell, can you help us? And so uh, many times 
It's about taking a close look at leadership because the leadership teams are evaluated in, in these transactions. Right. Sometimes it's about the leadership. Sometimes it's about the company's just kind of doing what it's doing, but it has no strategic focus. And so many of these companies have actually been brought in once I do, I do an organizational assessment to see where the departments are sitting, where the governance is sitting, where the executives are sitting, just get the holistic view. Um, what I found more often than not was that there was not a strategic plan that had focus and discipline for where the organization was headed. They were just doing good work, but to get to where. And right. the where was missing. Um, and so doing that and coming up with strategic goals made them much more focused. We realigned some management. Um, and the, com- and the, the companies then sold right. for a nice multiple. Yeah. Interesting work. I've, I've been called in to when conflicts come up between hedge funds and companies or management, where there's a, they, get, they get into real value fights. And it can get yeah. nasty. So, yeah, I understand the problems. Um, well, we're kind of com- coming to the end of our half hour. Uh, this has been a fascinating conversation. I have one more question for you. Sure. What, Christine, what is one thing about yourself that we would never know unless you revealed it to us? Um, one thing that not many people know is April is brain tumor month. Okay. Who knew? Who knew? I am a brain tumor survivor. Wow. Well, that's pretty impressive. Good for you. Yes. Very, very fortunate. You know, it's one of those 50-50 things. And on this one, I came out on... Heads heads were up. (laughs) Good for you. I'm not on the right side. So um, it was scary for a while. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to chat with me. Uh, I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you so much for the invitation. Doug Knoll here. Thank you so much for listening to Listening with Leaders. If you are a successful executive leader who would like to be on this program, please visit podcast.dougnoll.com slash podcast. If you got something out of this interview, would you please share this episode on social media? Just do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend or post it on the socials. If you know someone that would be a great guest, tag them on the social media to let them know about the show and include the hashtag listeningwithleaders. I love seeing your posts and guest suggestions. We are regularly putting out new episodes and content. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, go ahead and subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings, and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and mean a lot to me and my team. Want to know more? Go to my website, dougnoll.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. That's at Douglas E. Knoll. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next show.